Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Betsy Amster, Elise Caprone, Rebecca Friedman, Amy Liu, and Angela Rinaldi. You will now hear Amy Liu provide introductions. Okay, welcome. This is Agents Without Border. I am Amy Liu. I am not an agent, but I am the author of three novels, Flash House, Cloud Mountain, and Face, and two works of nonfiction, Gaining in Solitaire. And I teach in uh, Goddard College's MFA program in creative writing at Port Townsend, Washington, and I've hosted lots of agent panels. So that's why I'm moderating this one. So the description for this, for those of you who aren't sure where you are, in case you want to make sure that you're in the right room. Many writers believe that the only or best literary agents are located on the East Coast, but West Coast agents beg to differ. The major publishing houses may still reside in and around New York City, but major authors live throughout the world, and Pacific Coast agents have found that literary representation outside New York may actually be to the author's advantage. This panel's participants span several generations of West Coast agents who represent dozens of nationally and internationally award-winning authors. So um, I'm going to start off by thanking you for coming at the very end of this uh, AWP. And I know it's been a long conference, so I'm uh, pretty impressed that we've actually pretty much filled the room. That's great. And I want to tell you who's on the panel So uh, let's see, down at the end, we have, for more than a decade, Elise Capron has been an agent at the Dykstra Literary Agency, which was established over 30 years ago and represents a wide range of genres. Elise is most interested in representing adult literary fiction and narrative nonfiction, particularly history. Next to Elise is Angela Rinaldi, president of the Angela Rinaldi Literary Agency, which was founded in 1994. She has held managerial and editorial positions at Penguin, Random House, and Simon & Schuster. She founded the book publishing program at the Los Angeles Times, and she represents both fiction and nonfiction. Next up is Betsy Amster, president of Betsy Amster Literary Enterprises. Before opening her agency, she spent 10 years as an editor at Random House. Her clients include best-selling novelists Maria Amparo Escandon, Joy Nicholson, MacArthur Fellow Will Allen, and psychologist Elaine Aaron. And finally, to my left is Rebecca Friedman, who worked at Greenberger Associates, Sterling Lord Literistic, and the Hill Nadell Agency before starting her own agency in 2013. She's interested in commercial and literary fiction with a focus on literary novels of suspense, women's fiction, contemporary romance, and young adult, as well as journalistic nonfiction and memoir. Okay, so I'm going to throw out some questions, and hopefully we'll just uh, get a conversation going here. I'll save some time at the very end, at least 15 minutes, for your questions, and hopefully we'll get to this issue of West Coast versus East Coast, as well as as some of the nitty-gritty about getting an agent and working with an agent. So first off, just the basic question, is there a difference between a West Coast agent and an East Coast agent, ways they operate, access to publishers, authors they'll take on, et cetera, et cetera? Anybody want to go first? Yeah. Well, 
Of course my answer is going to be no, um, because first of all, I think everyone here has had New York background. And we're in New York a lot, and editors know us. They use us as their first readers, in case you didn't know that. And we all represent really wonderful books, and that's how we get known to editors. And I was just explaining to someone, the way we work now, you could be on the moon and sell something, because we don't talk on the phone anymore. Everything's done by email. We pitch by email. We send attachments, you can get a response from an editor within 15 minutes to an hour with an email, but you can't get a phone call returned. So it really is, I don't think there's any difference. Um, it really is the quality of the material that you're sending out. I feel that being a West Coast agent is part of my <clears throat> brand identity. I really like being a West Coast agent. I like having a long leash from New York. I spent time in New York. It's a great place. I loved getting my start in publishing. But I now like my distance from New York. We do all, we have to go to New York. We have to know the editor's taste. I'm sure we all operate pretty much the same way. Um, you know, we may have different tastes, but there, there are responsible ways of being agents, and I'm sure that we all do that. The great thing about being a West Coast agent with a lot of West Coast clients is that we are in this together. We are co-conspirators. We are in the same time zone as a lot of our clients. I'm sure we all represent people across the country. Um, but there is still something fun about having lunch with your clients. I used to live in Silver Lake. I live in Portland now. I used to have a lot of clients in Silver Lake. I mean, it got that kind of micro, like my neighborhood, my clients. Um, and that is just really fun. And part of what we're doing here, don't you think, is having some fun in our role as super readers. I also think wherever you are, there's different ideas floating around. And so there's certain ideas of what works maybe in New York that people wouldn't be interested in in other areas they think, but there's a huge country, um, and I find that the people and the agents who work on the West Coast are more open to different ideas. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, there aren't people like that in New York as well, of course, but I do think overall there's just this openness to not exactly what's you know, on the bestseller list this minute that you find out here that you might not find back there? I mean, I do think our day-to-day -day is a little bit different. I mean, the agents that, you know, who I know who are in New York are going to happy hour on a more regular basis. I mean, there's, I think, more of a casual kind of in-person day-to-day relationship does develop. And that is absolutely different than how my day works. But like everyone said, we go to New York a lot. Those end up being very, very focused sales trips. We still develop amazing relationships. I, I guess I'm probably the only person on the panel who has not worked in New York publishing. I've always been in California. We're based down in San Diego. Um, although Sandy, my boss, Sandy Dykstra, um, who founded the agency 
yeah, 35 years ago, I think now, is a New Yorker through and through. So we have our little bit of, I think, traditional New York agenting <laughs> in San Diego with our lovely ocean view. Yeah, but I love the dynamic, and I love having our office with everyone together, talking about books, really focused on the books. We also happen to represent quite a few clients who live in Manhattan, which is really funny when you start like mailing a galley to California and then mailing the sample like back to the author in New York. It's kind of gets a little silly, but, um, but I love being a West Coast agent and I, and we have a great community. There are a lot more agents in California and up and down the West Coast than you would think. We have a wonderful network. Um, there are a lot of us in San Diego and it's great. It's really dynamic and um, very active. Uh, speaking to that, well, how about the geography of publishing? Is that changing, or is it true that most of the publishers that you deal with are still New York publishers, or is that diversifying as well? It's still, it's still mainly New York. It's still mainly New York. That's always our first go-to. In your a, you know, when you do your, your first round of submissions, it's usually the mainstream houses. I do have editors that I sort of grew up with, like we started at the same time, who are now moving to different parts of the country and their publishing houses are open to them still working there. I have a friend in Pittsburgh who works at Penguin, who I have a lot of books with. And so I think that they're, I mean, it's going to take like probably 100 more years because they're very, very (laughs) slow to change. But the fact that there's a few of them I think is interesting, and I think it will also be interesting for what kind of books they end up publishing Mm -hmm. as well, because I think that there's just different interests, as I said, depending on where you are. So talk, you've all mentioned that um, your way of working, your your daily routine is a little bit different than um, a New York agent's daily routine. You want to speak to that and tell us what that routine is like and, and actually how often you do go to New York to have those meetings? Well, uh, I think we're all doing the same thing, which is reading submissions and then doing administrative work. I mean, we might be throwing the gym in there at 10 o'clock in the morning because we've been up at 6 or 7 looking at emails, and maybe you can flake a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> but because we, can, because we work by email now, you can really work any time of the day or night, and so so our days are really reading material and doing administrative stuff and meeting with clients. And we're kind of on New York hours, so you might find us at seven o'clock in pajamas in front of our computers, you know. And we probably work possibly even longer hours, but we have this blissful feeling starting at about two in the afternoon of they're not in the office anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Like stockbrokers, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so apart from uh, having lunch with your Silver Lake agent, if you happen to live in Silver Lake, are there other advantages for a new author in working with an agent outside of, of New York, of the New York scene? Well, we're not New York-centric. I think Betsy and a couple of and my colleagues here have hit on that we are not New York-centric. I think we're much more open to material that's outside of New York, whereas I think a lot of New York editors, they don't always get what we're doing out here, and honestly, they do rely on us to bring us the most interesting material. And so I I think probably the biggest thing is we're not New York-centric. But we're, we're trying to appeal to New Yorkers, so we have to figure out how to package you in such a way right. that we make you appealing to New Yorkers even as you are not a New Yorker. 
And it, it's, it's a fun challenge. Uh, any examples? Any illustrations you can give of how you approach that challenge? Well, Portland has a very avid food scene. And it is on the radar of New York, which is ever so handy for me. I cannot begin to tell you. It's like a gift that has been given to me that Portland has been covered in the New York Times so much. So you take advantage of any little thing that comes your way where you know, you know their newspaper of record has covered it. What a great thing. That, that just gives you leverage. There, there are other forms of leverage, too. There's a kind of name-dropping you start doing in publishing. I often find when I'm describing, I'm from Cleveland, my sister's in St. Paul, Minnesota. I will visit her, I'll start talking about some of the books that I'm representing, and I'll do it in that New York publishing talk. You know, like Bill Clinton gave Will Allen a quote. And I'll see my lovely Midwestern sister and brother-in-law sort of draw back from me, because I'm doing, <laughs> it's like, she's bragging. <laughs> but that's what you learn how to do because the New Yorkers expect it. So that's part of the packaging, too. But it, it's all actually really entertaining. <laughs> I, I enjoy it. Anybody else got any, any interesting stories of pitching, uh, you know, from outside New York to New York publishers that... Well, the, the pitch is all about, and once again, you could be on the moon and write a pitch as long as it's a good one, and you know who the editors are that are going to spark to it, and, and you're going to, when you're writing a pitch, it's always good to keep in mind cover copy, because I think that really encapsulates the material, so whether you're pitching from New York or you're pitching from the West Coast, we're, we're doing the same thing. I want to say, too, you know, this isn't just about thinking about what will appeal to New York, but this is about thinking about our relationships with each editor, which is a crucial, crucial part of why having an agent matters, is because we have years and years and years of built-up relationships with each of these individual people, and we know what they personally are looking for. I know this person loves chihuahuas or, you know, whatever the case may be. And we really do tailor those pitches based on those personal relationships. Okay, back to the geography. We're at AWP and, of course, the entire book show is filled with small presses from all over the world. Certainly all over the country, anyway. And I know that probably a lot of you are wondering um, what the connection might be, could be, between some of those small presses and literary agents, and this is always a tricky question, but do you deal with small presses at all, and when would you do that, and, and how would that happen? I think our big question is, can we add value to a relationship? You're talking about the really big houses. You know, They expect you to have an agent. They expect to be negotiating with that agent when he or she sells your book to them. First of all, let me say it's so exciting to go down to the book fair. I've spent a lot of time down there and wander around and see all these wonderful smaller houses that are doing such amazing work. I have purchased way too many books um, in the last couple of days. And it's just fabulous. Um, but generally, the smaller presses, we are going to wait you know, they're not going to be our first round places. And sometimes it may or may not make sense for us to represent you in the sale to a really small press because 
they're going to have a small staff, limited funds. They're only going to negotiate an agreement to a certain extent. Are we really, again, that question, adding value for you in that relationship? So that's what we keep in mind and kind of think about as we move forward with a submission. Uh, I'd like to add that a lot of the editors at the small houses are looking for the same type of material and the same quality that they are at the big houses also. I mean, they'll, we've been joking about this word propulsive. Um, we've been Sometimes when something is rejected, an editor will say, it's not propulsive enough, which translated means it doesn't have the urgency, it doesn't have the tension, it's not gone girl. And the editors at the small houses know that word also. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's, you're, you're dealing with the same thing. I, I do think, though, that there are some smaller houses that are very niche, but, you know, America's really big, so a niche of like Shambhala, for example, which is a smaller press, but it's, you know, a lot of like um, meditation and philosophy having to do with Eastern religions. I sold a book to them and it's done really, really well and and they know how to reach an audience that I don't think some of the bigger houses would be able to reach. It was a book about cancer and how, from a psychiatrist, and how to care for your partner in that, which is something that a lot of people have to do and seemed too niche for the bigger publishers but has sold really, really well through Shambhala. So, and then Hay House as well, I think, does yeah. a really great job. Mm-hmm. Hay House. Not Hay Day, no. but that's another one. And some of the houses have a lot more money than you think. <laughs> I've been surprised. And to some extent, it depends on whether the smaller houses are used to dealing with agents. Some really don't like dealing with agents because they kind of feel bullied and feel that agents don't understand their constraints. And then other houses have figured out how to deal with agents. And those are much easier for us to deal with. One example in L.A. is Prospect Park Books that Colleen Dunn-Bates runs, and they have a table. Of course, the book room doesn't exist anymore, but... They're a really good publisher. She deals with a lot of agents and has an incredibly author-friendly contract, which is one thing, if you are an agent dealing with smaller houses, you're going to look really closely at that contract. They can be really alarming. Mm. Colleen's happens to be profoundly author-friendly, so that's a great thing. Okay, so let's turn that around and say you're an author and you've been published by only small presses so far. And you would like to go more mainstream, and does that predispose you to that author? Does that make a difference, the fact that they've been published by small presses already? How does that work, going in reverse? Well, I think it's very much a positive in terms of the fact that I see you've been through the process, you understand, you're a professional about it. I think the question comes in, um, well... Really, number one, what are your priorities? Is your priority now to try and kind of make this leap to a bigger trade press? And what does that mean? And then me thinking about who is your audience? Has, is really your best audience with these smaller presses who know how to reach your readership? That's, that's a 
consideration? Or, you know, are you building a certain kind of platform, a certain lit- literary career? You're win- winning the, the right awards and fellowships as you publish with small presses. And now, maybe now is the time to see if we can jump to an FSG or whatever the case may be. Um, so I think it's just looking about the, the big picture of your career and what really makes sense for you. Anybody else have any stories of working with people coming out of the small press world or making that transition? I haven't really had any experience with that, but I could say what I would be looking for is if their next book was ready to be sent to mainstream houses. That would be the first criteria for me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry? Yes, if it's ready to be sent to the mainstream. So this is transitioning for us to... What do you look for when an author first approaches you? And, you know, feel free to tell us war stories, too, of positive and and negative, of of people who have approached you and and you've just been wowed, maybe somebody in recent history that's um, blown you away on the first pass. I think we all probably look for the quality of the writing. Uh, And a clear indication that the writer knows how to take the reader... To, to give the reader an experience, understands that the reader is in their hands. And that will come through in the writing. You may not be thinking about the reader in your early drafts, but at a certain point you have to start thinking about the reader. And we look for some indication that you understand the effect of your writing on the reader. I also think it's really good to know who you're sending it to. Um, the most successful queries, besides being well-written and telling a story, like what Betsy was just saying, also, I feel, are targeted. So if someone writes to me and says, you know, I'm sending you this novel because of read or know the work of another client of mine, it just helps because you feel like they actually want to work with you. And I think that's really, it's really smart for them. And it's really smart for me to know that they have a particular reason why they picked me out. But they have to really mean it. Because don't you, I get a lot of letters where, where somebody has signed up for publisher's lunch and they're getting deal lunch and they've seen some sales of mine and, and they're basically writing back to me and telling me something I know about myself. Right. Do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, but I think, I guess what I'm saying is it has to be in line with what you're doing. Yes. So if you send me a query and you say, I wrote a, a you know, deeply psychological novel about the effects of war, and you tell me that you're sending it to me because you read Kara Hoffman's Be Safe, I Love You. I'm going to be really interested in that. But if you tell me you're interested in me because of some young adult book I did on like dating, it wouldn't make sense. So it's context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd just like to add, for me, it's, it's engagement, how quickly I get into what's being sent to me, the voice how quickly I feel it's just me and the writer on the page. And I think what everybody else has said here, I think Rebecca makes a really good point. If you're writing science fiction, don't send me science fiction because I don't represent that. So I think it's important that you research agents' websites before you send them anything. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of emails that come in that are like, Dear Sir. Which is obviously like my first, you know, tip off that maybe they don't know they're sending it to me. Right. So. Are there different criteria that you look for between uh, fiction and creative nonfiction? I'll assume that 
most people here who are doing nonfiction are doing creative nonfiction as opposed to journalism. Criteria of yeah, what you're looking is. for in the, the work, how you judge it, how you, how you determine whether it's something you would want to take on. Well, I do think with any kind of nonfiction, and I'll bring up that dreaded word platform, and it's not platform exactly. I do put more weight on thinking about, is this person building a certain brand for him or herself? Is she aware of that part of it? Because I think when it comes to nonfiction, I I am thinking more, well, is this really what you're going to be doing for the long haul? Is this the subject you're interested in, the area you want to build your expertise in, um, et cetera? So that absolutely does carry more weight. Um, It's also important to an extent on the fiction side, certainly. I mean, I want to see that you're getting fellowships and building a certain type of career as well, but I think it probably does have a little more emphasis on the nonfiction side. Uh, I, I agree that platform is really important with nonfiction, but I'm finding a, increasingly with nonfiction and fiction, there's an urgency that I look for is why should I care about this? And why will an editor care about this? And I think that works for both fiction and nonfiction. I want to, I want to care about a character. And there was uh, a couple of months ago, there was a really good article in the Los Angeles Times by, I forget his first name, his last name is Goddard, and he's a script consultant, and he consulted on The Martian, the self-published book by Andy Weir, and he said, often my notes say, why do I care about this person? You know, all he wants is water. Find him water. That's the conflict, is his finding water. So I, I think, for me, it's that tension, that narrative urgency, that propulsiveness works in both fiction and, and nonfiction. And then we would like to see a certain amount of ammo. Ammo is sort of allied with platform. And that might be you're getting an MFA, you're working with a writer who is supportive of you who might be known to the New York editors. And you mentioned that in your query letter. You might have prior publications. All those things can show a kind of professionalism that we can leverage on your behalf. But I have to say, in my experience, it hasn't mattered that much for fiction. I'm not saying it couldn't matter, Mm -hmm. but I've sold a lot of fiction where the person had absolutely no platform. But I've sold no nonfiction or creative nonfiction. Oh, that's not true. But almost true. (laughs) The only nonfiction that I've been able to sell that's creative nonfiction that didn't have a platform was a very – it was personal story, like a much more of a memoir – then it didn't matter that much. But that I think it usually does. Any difference in when you're looking at the work of a first-time author? A lot of the people here are going to be, maybe they've been published in literary journals. Does that color your reaction when you receive the, the pitch or the, or the manuscript? That, that it's a first-time author? Mm-hmm. Um, No, I mean, I think, number one, we're all looking for the next new voice. So there's actually something very exciting about being a first-time author. Sometimes, in certain cases, it can be easier, not easier is not exactly the right word, but then having, you know, a string of books that maybe haven't done very well, and you're battling with that, you know, (laughs) that history. So no, I think we're all looking for new new voices, and it's just about latching on to that, us seeing how we can d- help you develop a career. I mean, and I love, I love to, 
to start working with someone at an early point in their career and really help build that. I don't think we've you know brought up yet that most agents these days, we really, we're not just going in for the one book. We really are career consultants. We're looking at a much bigger picture. We're looking at the long haul. So I love when I can see kind of the whole path, possible path for, for an author from an early point um, and be there for the whole you know, ride of that. It's really a lot of fun. There's been a lot of talk at this conference about diversity, and I wonder what the scene looks like in terms of diversity in the publishing world right now um, in terms of the authors that you're considering that were coming to you and the kind of reception that authors from various backgrounds are receiving in New York, and what is that whole scene of diversity like from your perspective? I think it's very healthy. Very, very healthy. I mean, just look at some of the lists, and and in Publishers Weekly, the um, first novels that are being published, there's a lot of diversity and a lot of multi multicultural fiction. From my perspective, it's not so healthy. I've had a few clients in the more recent past that um, were disappointed that they never found an agent or an editor of color. I cannot think of one agent of color. Wow. Can you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know anybody, but I'm... In New York, yeah, there's quite a few, actually. Okay. Yeah. Name some. Uh, <laughs> can so we I name can, a, I, yeah. I can, you know, I, I know I've been at conferences. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry the names are just not with me right now, but I know there are. So I don't think, I don't think that there aren't books coming out from right, diverse right, right. people, but I do think it's hard that nobody who's deciding whether or not... Or very few people. Or very few, few people. Yeah. Yes, right. a few people, yeah. right. and I just... And, and recently, a lot of the people, not because of their race, but a few people who weren't white were fired all at once. So, and then, and then I was trying to think of, like, which editors were left that weren't white. It's very hard. There's very few editors that aren't white. Publishing itself is fairly famous Speaking for being, oh, yes, for, for not being that diverse, the, the actual companies and who works in them. But I think there is a lot of interest in diverse voices among the editors. But, of course, it would be better if there were more actual diversity at the publishing companies, too. Because sometimes they can be kind of dim-witted about things because of that lack of diversity. And I think there's like this Oops. big... Sorry. There's a really big, and this isn't exactly the question, but there's this really big disconnect between what readers want to read and what publishers want to publish. And so... <laughs> what? I, sorry. Right. <laughs> so the race and diverse issue has a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's not the only issue within that, but I think they have to think that they can reach an audience that they know how to reach to, to buy the book. And if they haven't had experience reaching a certain audience before, then they don't think they can publish that book. I, I understand that on a business level, but on the other hand, I think it makes it difficult for a lot of books to be published. We have to keep in mind, though, this is, this is about more, I think, than just the publishing ind industry itself, but it's thinking about, you know, what books are going to be reviewed in the New York Times. This is about, this is about a you know, whole issue of media as well, I think, and the kind of books that, that unfortunately, the industry thinks 
are going to get attention from certain places. I'm not obviously not saying any of this is, you know, right. But I think, you know, there's a big ripple effect here that we have to think about that mm-hmm. does take a long time to change. But I feel, I mean, the Dykstra Agencies list has a lot of diversity and we really believe in representing all kinds of different, you know, people and stories and perspectives. And I, I really value, you know, our list uh, for that reason. And you know, I, I think agents, I think we're doing our best to get whatever we can out there. And part of that is, you know, being here and meeting also just all kinds of different people and all of us being supportive of each other and moving towards whatever future we can. So just one more question on this sort of diversity issue, because um, I hadn't planned to address this, but it sort of comes up. And, and I may be dating myself, but I remember when um, Amy Tan's books first came out, you know, it was sort of like she was the, the Asian American writer and all the editors were looking for another uh, Amy Tan. And I, I, you know, so you can do that with the, another Jhumpa Lahiri, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, obviously diversity is hugely more complex than that. There are many more voices within each little group, but are they still pigeonholing to the extent that they used to? Meaning um, like if you're going to write from, uh, from, an in, from an Indian perspective, it has to be written like Jupiter Lahiri? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry to be the disagreeing one here. No, but no go it's ahead. Interesting. <laughs> I, I think if, I'm sorry I don't have a bunch of lists with me, but right now on the list there's, let me see if I can pronounce that, Coates, um, oh, yeah. Tahiti. Yeah. And there's so many books like that, Indian writers, Asian writers. I think the diversity, I still maintain that it's very healthy. You know, I brought something, Amy, if I could just take sure. a minute please, to read it. This really struck me. There's a website called The Millions website, and editors write for it. And this Jerry Howard, who's executive editor at Doubleday, and a former colleague of mine, this is what goes through his mind when he reads one of our submissions. But as I read these, those submissions and edit those manuscripts, on another cognitive plane, I am reality testing what I am reading. What are the books, the fabled and often tiresome comp titles are like this one, and how did those books sell? We're always fighting the last war. Is it too similar to something we published recently or are publishing in the near future, or to a book some other house has or shortly will publish? Are the visual images in the book that might be utilized on the cover? What writers of note can I bug for pre-publication blurbs? Is there something about the author, some intriguing or unusual backstory, some charisma radiating off the page, and maybe the author photo, don't act so shocked, that suggests that he or she will be a publicity asset? What might a reasonable advance be, given the amounts that have been paid recently for similar books, or might for some reason be thrown out the window? And then he goes on to talk about the in-house support. But I think books, diversity, is judged the same way as anything else. This is what the editor is thinking, whether you're diverse or not. Great. That mention of the appearance um, does bring up a, a question, and it's related to the issue of platform and all of that. I had a student once who was... Uh, very obese and incredibly self-conscious about his obesity. And he was a wonderful writer, but he was convinced that he would never get published because of his weight. And I wonder, you know, realistically, honestly, how much does that factor in? Um, and we are talking about the mainstream press here, not the We don't press, send but... photos in with our proposals mm-hmm. or our novels. The photos don't go. Okay. Good. 
I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say too, I mean, when I'm going with my, through my submission pile, um, I don't know how old you are. I don't know what ethnicity you are. I, you know, I don't know anything. And I, I am really, truly, I promise, basing my decision, my initial decision about whether I want to pursue a project further, at least to the next step, on just whether those pages spark something in me. It really does come down to that. This is an industry that as much as we can get into, you know, all the other things that drive it, I believe is at its heart still driven by, you know, the beauty of a book and us falling in love with it and carrying that passion along from you, the writer to us the agents to the publisher and then to a reading public and that's why we you know stay in this industry and why I will always really believe in it and yeah so we're selling our enthusiasm all the way down the line (laughs) that's what we do Uh, so nuts and bolts questions the issue of uh, simultaneous submissions uh, always a big one and how do you feel about receiving simultaneous submissions we all expect, I mean, if it, unless anyone differs, um, to receive simultaneous submissions now. In fact, I think most of us will say it's not in your best interest to do an exclusive submission these days. It used to be different when I started. I think it was a little different because submissions were coming in as paper. It was amazing. And I was putting them in a big bin together and they were there in front of me and I was flipping through them. And if I saw it was an exclusive, I could literally pull it out of that pile. Now we're all getting so much and it's all on email and it's overwhelming and it's all going into a folder in my outlook (laughs) that an exclusive submission, number one, can get lost. I might not see it right away and might not be able to give that project the priority I'd like to give it. And it really just, it could end up basically resulting in you waiting around for a long time. Go out to a bunch of people. The only reason I think to go on exclusive is if you really have, you know, a very specific relationship with this person or they're your absolute number one dream agent. And even if you do do that, be sure that they, you know, acknowledge, excuse me, acknowledge your submission pretty quickly and give you some kind of timeline on what their uh, reading time might be. And that was my next question, is how, how quickly do you turn around? And let's look separately. I assume it's a separate answer for queries on nonfiction versus fiction manuscript. I'm, I'm assuming that, but maybe I'm wrong. So how long does it take you to turn around um, submissions and respond to people? I, I think agents respond, at least initially, very quickly these days because we're all aware that other people are responding quickly. I think there is a kind of peer pressure on us to respond. Once we get a complete manuscript, to some extent all bets are off because that's really a commitment of time. But even there, I think we are all aware that time is of the essence. So I don't think, you know, sometimes you won't hear from somebody for six months, but that probably means they're not interested in your work. I think when we are interested, and we base that sometimes incrementally, like, you know, maybe we've seen, I ask for the first three pages of anything narrative fiction or nonfiction embedded in your email. So if I like those first three pages, I then may ask for the first 50, and then I will ask for the whole manuscript. So it might be kind of an incremental thing. But I I feel that we delay at our peril now. For me, it, it sort of depends on how busy I am with my current clients. And I wish that wasn't the case, cause, but sometimes I'll have a lot of current clients 
with a new manuscript all at the same time, and that has to take priority over new writers. So sometimes I'm really good, and, and then sometimes I'm not. And that's probably true for all of us, yeah. Yeah, I think. I think that's correct. Um, I will just say on the most kind of basic level, check each agent's website. They almost always will list the uh, time period in which they'll get back to you or not get back to you or whatever the case may be. They'll, they'll lay out the groundwork of how they respond. But if you do send a full manuscript into an agent who's asked for it, in that case, you know, just ask them what is your timeline that I can expect. When is it okay for me to check in with you? And then I think you should check in because if, it, if they said they'd get back to you in six weeks and they haven't, you're, you know, that's not annoying. That's smart and professional of you to ask them if they've had a chance to look at it. Do you all have uh, submission guidelines on your websites? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the easiest way to find out how, how you should submit. And what questions should writers ask prospective agents? Oh, this just goes to what um, Elise was talking about earlier about making sure you do simultaneous submissions. Unless... There's, like what she said, I think it's really, really smart, especially if you get more than one person interested, because you really don't know what you want from the, or maybe you do know what you want from the relationship, but usually you don't know exactly what you want from the relationship until you talk to people and kind of find out how they work and how you click and what kinds of things you would get from them that you wouldn't get from other people. And I think that, like, shopping around, if that's a possibility, is really helpful for you, because then you really say, like, you know, some people don't care if they like their agent. They just want someone who's going to sell their book. And some people want to have more of a relationship with them where they can talk to them about their kids. And some, you know, there's, there's just a lot of different kinds of things. And, um, and the best way to tell what you like is by actually talking to the different people. And when you do, I think one question worth asking is, you, you don't want to interview agents as if you're working for Consumer Reports. Like, there shouldn't be this adversarial undertone. You want to gently interview them and conversationally interview them. And you can say, you know, how much will you keep me posted on the submission process? And what you want to hear is, I will keep you posted in all respects. Um, I'm going to tell you which editors I'm sending it to, and I'm going to send you a copy of their rejection emails if they reject your book um, because you don't want to be in a position where you really have no idea what's going on. It's like this weird black box. And, you know, if you end up feeling like the agent is not right for you and yet you haven't been kept posted on where your work has gone, that makes it very difficult for another agent to take you on. So just making sure that the agent is really transparent about the process is helpful. I think, too, when you get to the point where you've been offered representation um, and you're having this discussion, it's really important to um, make sure that you are both in sync in terms of vision for the project, in terms of your career as a whole, in terms of working style, like Betsy mentioned. I think that's really important. Yeah, just like knowing the best way to communicate with, with each other. If that agent is the type of person who gets back to you in three hours on an email or if they maybe take longer, just really have an understanding of that agent and make sure you're comfortable with that. Because if you go ahead and sign up and then you know six months down the road, just these general kind of working styles are not meshing, it's going to be a potentially miserable relationship for you. So you really want to make sure you're comfortable with every aspect of it. And then you kind of, that you put it all out on the table 
in at that first moment when you're making this big decision that could you know take up many years of your life I agree with all that the one thing that I would ask is that everybody understands the financial situation that agents do get commissions and they don't go away after the book is sold that commission is in perpetuity um, I think you should understand that royalties are paid twice a year and just how the business part of it works because so often I think authors just they think if they get an advance they don't understand where that money is going and so that they wind up with you know could be very little of it not very little of it but there's chunks taken out or it doesn't come until the book earns out so I think it's important that you understand the financial aspect of it also and just um, on that sort of the, the business aspect, when do you sign a contract with your clients? Do you wait until the book is sold? Do you have, sign contracts with them when you begin to work with them? Yeah. Speak to the different. Uh, we sign contracts. I sign contracts with my clients as soon as I decide I want to represent their work. Um, even if I know that we still have a lot of editorial work to do, I would say that um, probably all of us these days, I think most agents in general, now we, we do a lot of developmental work and a lot of editorial work with our clients um, before we go on sale. Uh, what does that mean and what can, what can you expect when you do sign with an agent? Um, I would say in most situations you're at least going through one to two revisions of your project before it goes out to market. The project you spent years on and really thought was as polished as possible, you might have to kind of rip apart. It's obviously not an ideal situation, but I have had a few cases with like a big novel where we've had to spend, you know, six months working on it before we go on sale. Um, that does sometimes happen. We only want to go out when it's right. But I'm representing you that whole time because I've decided I really, you know, I'm investing your t my time, you're investing your time. Let's make this official and exclusive. It is a marriage. <laughs> and we're only going to work together. Great. Okay, everybody's on the same page. Okay. Uh, go ahead. So I have other agents at my agency, and some of them are former lawyers. So this does not go for them. I do not sign agreements with my clients. I will if people really want an agreement, but I have found that I have had to get people out of such horrible agent agreements over the past 10 years that obviously I'm not saying you guys have bad agency <laughs> agreements. There are good agency agreements and the ones that people sign with my agency, not with me, but with my colleagues are is totally fair, but I have seen such horrible abuse of power that it's hard for me to do that, and I've never, I mean, I'm sure this will now bite me in the ass, but I have never had somebody work with me for six months on a novel and then not let me sell it. Like, that, has, that would be why I would want them to sign something, which I totally respect, but that has not happened yet. I'm sure it will, now that I said that. But <laughs> the thing about these agency agreements is, you, and I'm not saying for the, our, us, but a lot of them are very land-grabby in a way that I don't think is appropriate. And I also think that they have terms in them, like year terms, that I also don't think is appropriate. So time. I think some time is appropriate. I just don't think in perpetuity is necessarily appropriate if they haven't sold your work. It's well, a handshake deal for me. Well, and I think it's a great moment to say that when you are ready to sign with an agent, I know it's super exciting and you want to make it official as quickly as possible. 
look at that agreement for this reason. Like, it is important. It is a legal agreement. And not um, all agencies are the same. And exactly. some of them are not, you know. Yeah, and there are certain industry standards in agency agreements, but they're all different. Um, and it is worth having it looked at. Um, I would advise having it looked at by someone who knows something about the book industry, just because you may get in a hole of spending a lot of money with a lawyer who maybe doesn't quite understand how the industry works, for example. But it is a legally binding document, and really take good care with that. Don't sign it and fax it right back. Yeah, and there are resources out there. You can uh, go to the Authors Guild. Mm -hmm. They will help you. And also the uh, uh, AAR. Yeah. They are. Sorry. They are. What's, it, what's it stand for? The Association of Author of all, Representatives? Yes. Yeah. It has really, and it's on their website yeah. as well. It's very the good. AAR has a canon of ethics, and that can be helpful to read. Right. Ethics for you agents. You might find right, exactly. that the agency agreement you get is not the canon of ethics. Right. The other thing is, is that money doesn't, so one of the reasons to have agency agreements is that money changes hands. But money doesn't come in unless we make a deal for you. And we all have agency clauses that go into our contracts that say we take a certain percentage of the deal. So those deals, obviously, with HarperCollins, Random House, and all those other publishers, I do do contracts, and I do have my agency clause within that, and that's when many, money changes hands. But many, many agencies, I think it's normal for agencies to charge for copy editing, for mailing. Do you mean copying? Copying, not copy yeah. editing. No, I'm sorry. Yes, but I do think that there's still like expenses that a lot of agencies accrue that, that they then want to have an agency agreement as part of that. I don't know. I don't. I can't remember the last time I got an expense on anything because the galleys are sent to foreign publishers as attachments. We sending everything as an attachments. If if there's ever an author that has a concern on there, they can put a cap of $100, and then you have to check with them afterwards. Uh, but I know what Rebecca is saying, because there are agents who try to lock you into two and three books and things like that. So I think it's very important that you look at a contract very carefully, because it does lay the whole thing out. I think there's a certain amount of expectations management in agency contracts. I mean, I think in good ones. Um, I have a clause, for example, that basically says if there's a disagreement, first you and I will discuss it. And then kind of lays out, if that doesn't work, where are we going to go from there? But I want to establish that the first step is going to be you and I will discuss it. So in that way, I think agency agreements can be really good. I've always gotten the sense, maybe from the AAR lawyer, that they're not terribly enforceable, meaning you can't – it's not like some weird indentured servitude – where you can hold someone against their will as your client, because that's never going to work. And I think that there is a thing in publishing where we recognize if a relationship is not working, we are going to part ways. Whether we have an agreement, I mean, we're not going to part ways as we're negotiating the contract for you with the publisher, but you know, if we're not getting along, if we don't share a vision for your book after all, we're going to part ways. So, I mean, I think there's flexibility the stuff that I've read has mostly been with maybe some of the smaller publishers who take on first-time authors, maybe some romance authors, maybe some self-published, some startups and stuff like that. I think, who was that woman at Entangled? Oh, not Entangled, um, uh, Eleonora's Cave. Yeah, Eleanor I mean, Eleanor's they. Cave. yeah, a, a lot of those smaller publishers who took on 
romance authors did treat them like indentured servants. Mm-hmm. I mean, they made them sign ridiculous contracts. But there are contracts. agency agreements like that, too, at big agencies. Really? Okay. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing, but, but I... But there's also agencies that have really good ones that talk about terms of, like, how we would work on it. You know, so it's not one size fits all. Great. Another paradigm shift is kind of happening right now with all of the electronics and self-publishing and all of that. And, and Rebecca, I know I don't know if you want to speak to that in terms of what your, but I know you've been doing some very novel things with self-published authors uh, as an agent. And is the role of the agent changing in this world where types of books are changing, electronic publishing, self-publishing, all of that, um, how do you see your role transitioning in this shift? In- yeah, sorry. Yeah. I keep forgetting about this. Sorry. So about a couple of years ago, I started taking on a lot of very successful self-published romance authors. Um, I had never done romance before, but I found that uh, I liked it. So there's a lot of differences. A lot of agents did that and sold other books or the books that have already been self-published to, public, to traditional publishers. And just as you'll find that every individual is different, there's different ways that each agent works with each client. So, for example, I don't take money from my client's self-published work because I am not involved in their self-published work. But... I do advise them, like what Elise was talking a lot about, about like their career and sort of how to manage a hybrid career. How, when do you publish for yourself? When do you publish with the publisher? What kinds of books do you self-publish? And what kinds of books do you publish with a publisher? Because what readers will read in the indie market is not necessarily what editors want to edit. Um, they love the numbers that a lot of self-published writers have, and a lot of self-published writers are very talented writers, but the stories that they're telling and the way that they're telling them, the editors are just not into it. So there's all of that kind of balancing act, and this is really genre-specific. I think it's big in romance, it's big in thrillers and mysteries. I don't really think it's that big anywhere else. Maybe in some motivational... YA? Isn't isn't YA? YA is not very... Sci-fi. Sci-fi, definitely. YA is, it's very hard to get the audience in the indie market. By, yeah. Well, I just want to say on that note, I don't represent romance, but I find it to be the most fascinating genre, the way it works, because you really do see, it, it's almost expected, I think, now to do a bunch of self-publishing on your route to going the traditional route and then kind of having more of a hybrid career where you're maybe doing both at the same time. And it's about producing a lot of content. And I I find this amazing. And I, I also think it says a lot about the romance community and what, you know, avid readers they are and how supportive they are of the, of their authors. And I think it's really interesting to kind of see how the changes in the way publishing happens in romance and a few other specific genres may end up rippling out to other genres in the future. But I love the energy of that area. I need to start representing romance, I guess. But, <laughs> but and it's really cool. And I, and I think it's kind of the big place where we are seeing a change in how publishing is working. Well, there's, there's an infrastructure, which is really interesting, which is not really the case for literary fiction. 
There's no infrastructure for that. The novels are too different. But that's what's so admirable about the romance world, is that they're operating within that. I wish there was an infrastructure for the literary world. I know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, but, I'm, like, trying for those, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all about, like, what we were saying with the publisher, about reaching the audience. So romance is romance fans read more books than any other genre, and they're more open to new authors than any other genre. And so it's very inclusive. It's very, like, girl power and all that kind of stuff. But it's sort of. (laughs) The books aren't, but the women who read them are. I don't know. It's kind of confusing. And the audience is on Facebook. Like, you can just go on Facebook. You can find reader groups with 10,000 people in them. You could be a new writer. You could make a relationship with that reader group. And guess what? You've just met 10,000 people through different Facebook games, and your book is two ninety nine. and they'll probably, you know, even if 10% take a chance on it, that's 1,000 books, which is a lot more than a lot of literary novels sell. And so it's been really interesting because I've been thinking a lot about how to think about the romance genre and then how to translate it. And I do think that there's, like, something going to happen, but I'm not exactly sure what. Yeah, it's a pretty big jump. And the other thing is with, with literary fiction, like, you can have an amazing review in the New York Times, and still no one buys the book. Or you can have an amazing review in the New York Times, and everybody buys the book. So we, but we don't really know, like, you can sometimes pinpoint why a book's selling really well, but often you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, literary fiction publishing is still this crazy place where there seem to be no rules whatsoever and if you have that if you manage to like hit it just right and everything works out then you know your book can really fly but it i i find that in general it's incredibly hard to anticipate what is going to uh work really well and what won't despite everything you know we all just pray every single day for a new york times review but it really doesn't always mean very much i know i've had them and they didn't (laughs) so sad Let's open it up for questions. Right there. Yeah, I um, have had some agents reach out from reading my work, and in the process of deciding between them, I guess I wasn't sure. Uh, so I'm a creative nonfiction writer. Some of them mostly have fiction titles listed. A lot of the authors I don't know, maybe one or two I do. Uh, they all seem like great people. So what would you say I could use to sort of weigh between them, or how would you go about that process? So the question is, if you're looking at a bunch of different agents and you're trying to find information about them, how do you decide who to approach? How do you evaluate which agent might be right for you? Well, so they approached me, and so it feels like this self-selecting tool that I'm choosing among, and I don't know if then I actually should still look at. Ah, so if you're approached by agents, should you just limit yourself to those agents, or should you go back? That's a great question. Thoughts? I would say if... In that group, there's someone that you've heard of who could easily be a first choice, and you've looked at their websites, and they're, they've sold you know, great books, and they're in your genre, then yeah, you might have three or four people to choose from. But if they don't meet that criteria, and you've, then definitely open it up and go out to others that are representing what you're writing. Well, also look at what publishers they're dealing with. Yeah. Have you heard of the publishers? That might be more important than whether you've heard of the authors just because so many books are published. And if they're dealing with the large houses and you're writing narrative work and they've handled a lot of fiction, the fact that you're writing narrative work, th- there is overlap. 
So I would look at the houses. So I've edited a book that has a Kickstarter campaign of $35,000. What does it take to get your attention? (laughs) (laughs) A book that's got a Kickstarter campaign, and what does it take to get your attention? Well, what exactly yeah, is what, that, what, what does that Kickstarter campaign involve? For so you've got thirty-five thousand dollars. So, so the, those are thirty-five dollars in pledges to buy books. Oh, I see. But what does that mean to an editor that got people who are going to spend thirty-five thousand dollars to buy your book? But you've got to find a pub. Are you self-publishing? And then, no, that, 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 then, then the question is, you know, is that enough to get your attention to say, hey, I could take this to a publisher? Maybe. Maybe. It would really depend on what it is that you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question that's related to what you were discussing earlier, and that is, when do you let an agent decide to drop a client? Uh, when does an agent decide to drop a client? <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't like to talk about that. All right. All right. I'll start this. Sometimes it's you don't drop someone. There's a gentle fading away if um, you're not agreeing on things and if you have in your agency agreement that there's only six months to sell it and the six months passes, then whatever. But most times it's very businesslike and it's just saying this doesn't work out uh, on both sides. And um, sometimes there's, there's just a disagreement or there's a personality clash and all those things should be pretty obvious in the beginning. And if something doesn't sell and the agent has really gone to 20, 25 houses and that happens, we do do that. And then maybe that's just time to say, maybe I need new representation. And, but it's usually very professional and very courteous. Weird. So the question, yeah, yeah. The question yeah. is, an that's, agent wants to yeah, shop around weird. the work yeah, without good. committing to you yeah. and without letting you know where yeah. they're taking that's it. That's not yeah. good. That's not good. Okay. That's, that's very shady. Don't do it. <laughs> Way in the back. Is there an optimal word count or range of word count? Well, I do think you want to know what the general guidelines for your genre are. And that is just to say, it's, it's not like I'm, you know, if I get something that's, you know, 67,000 words that I'm thinking, wow, that really needs to be 71,000 words. <laughs> but when I do get query where something's 250,000 words and it's, you know, a debut literary novel, I'm thinking, I, you know... We're going to have some problems here. And it's not that that's even necessarily a deal breaker. So every, everyone, everyone really freaks out about the word count thing when I go to conferences and talk to people. And it's not that it's a deal breaker. It's just that then I'm thinking, okay, so I, number one, have to really, really love this. And number two, know that I'm going into the relationship needing to do a significant amount of revision, cutting this way back, et cetera, is do I love it enough to get into that? 
And is the author going to be willing to do that work? So that's the only reason it really can be a red flag um, for me. And yeah, so just go go in, just like any guidelines for the genre you're writing in, understand understand those parameters. So the question is, how many query letters do you get a week on an average, and and how often do you actually take on new clients? Uh, I would say query letters can be, you know, 25 to 30 a week, maybe 100. It really depends. The thing with email now, anybody who has a thought in their head can send you a query. So, so true. you have to be able to, when you weed out the real queries versus the other stuff that comes in, it's not as great as it seems, but we do get we do get a lot of queries, and uh, I'd say maybe from the queries that I get, I I take maybe one or two on a year. It could oh, be at yes, least. at least. Yeah. Anybody else? You all in that same ballpark? Okay. Yeah. All right. Over here. Yeah. Right. So the question is, if you've had an agent and you've broken up with the agent, how much of that do you reveal when you're talking to new agents? It's like, you know, it's like getting married after you've been divorced. Or dating after you've been divorced. Just say that you had representation in the past. And then in a phone conversation, as things progress, you know, that, that information will arise. Yeah. They will do well, that. I think it's what Rebecca was saying before. There's, there's, not, there's no constants. Things can be different. Some agencies work more professionally than, than others. Okay. And I didn't sign anything with them. Sorry. Yeah, so you're free. Way in the back. Oh, great question. What are some of the career steps to becoming an agent if, if people are interested in Have enough that money way? to live for five years. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, a lot I of you were editors. So I think working, working in New York and really getting immersed in the publishing industry is really, yeah. really, really helpful. I think I did it a really traditional way. I, I mean, I think it's traditional is in that I worked for other agents, and it was very much like an apprenticeship for years. 
and it took time for me to find an agent that I could work for who was doing the kinds of books that I wanted to do. And then I learned a lot. And I learned a lot from the people doing books that I wasn't interested in, too, actually. And then slowly taking on my list of people and, and building it. Finding a good mentor is, I think, the best way. And I do think, too, that internships and all that kind of stuff are really um, helpful if you are able to you know, do that for six months or a year. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have an agent in England who represents me for screenwriting and directing, but I began writing fiction, and I've lived here 15 years. I wrote a book which I submitted in January, was possibly a first time, and he really liked it, but he's trying to find a book agent within the agency. It's a very big agency inside. And, um, however, the second book, which I've nearly finished, is set completely in Los Angeles, and it's uh, very different. And I don't think he's interested in anything American that I've written. I mean, I haven't asked him yet, but his feeling is, write me something set in England. So do you come across this? So the question is, if you have an agent overseas who is representing work that is set overseas and you're writing something about Los Angeles or America, is it possible to have a second agent? I have a lot of relationships with agents overseas, and he might have something like that here, where they'll sell something in England and then they'll want someone in America to represent those rights or um, vice versa. And it's been really fruitful for me. So I think there's a lot of history of that. Um, And he might have, depending on the agency, he probably has. I think that's pretty common. Oh, I know them. Yeah, very well. Yeah. I'm sure he has American people. Great question. So the question is, if if it's a good idea to have a referral to make a connection to an agent, how do you guys go about finding those people to ask, and how do you make that ask? How do you phrase it? What what exactly are you asking people for, and and who should you go to ideally to ask for the connection? Well, I just want to say that a couple things. First of all, even if – well, just setting aside that agent submission requirements, having some kind of referral or blurb is always helpful no matter what. It can make a huge difference. In fact, I would say the majority of new clients I take on are referrals from my existing clients. Just because I trust their judgment, I know that they know, know me and the other writer, they know we'll work well together, and it quite often works out quite well. Yes, I will admit, I actually technically don't take unsolicited submissions. And that's just based on me having a pretty full plate right now. But if I, for example, have met you somewhere, like... <laughs> here, this room, you're already getting past that. So that's a great reason just also to be networking. I know it can be frustrating when you feel like there's a wall up with from one agent maybe you really want, but that just sometimes happens. But again, getting out and being part of the community and meeting us is 
getting past all that. Uh, but in terms of, you know, going, trying to get a blurb or a referral, do you go to your big famous friend? I don't know. I mean, I think it's about really doing what is, is true to your work and is actually going to help it and not just going to the most famous person you know, but doing something that really does feel like an, it fits in naturally with everything else you're doing. And then I will see that that you know, that is an authentic referral from someone or connection or blurb of, for someone who really does understand and believe in your work. And that makes a, a huge difference in my eyes when I read a query. That's a great reason to be part of a writing program because the authors that you're meeting and working with as mentors are perfect for people to give referrals to. So uh, there's one, one, one more question, one last question. Okay, you go. Yes, so the question is yes. You won't remember me, but I can say Definitely, if you approach these agents, mention that you met them here. Okay, I think we're at time. Thank you very much, and thank you, all of you, wonderful agents. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.